Live from New York at the Chainalysis Lynx Conference, this is Public Key, and I'm your host, Ian Andrews. This is the third episode of a series that will air over the next few weeks, and the series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, the official sponsor of Live from Lynx. This spring, crypto industry watchers have been glued to the regulatory developments in the U.S. Everything from staking to custody to stablecoins seems up for debate, and I find it hard to guess at what might come next. Fortunately for me, on this episode, I'm joined by Sam Tenkate, who is Managing Director of State Street Digital at State Street, and an expert on digital asset regulations. Sam and I discussed the institutional demand for digital assets following the 2022 market turmoil, what opportunities are driving State Street's entry into the market, and what he expects for the year ahead. As you listen to this, we've just wrapped up the Chainalysis Links Conference in New York City. It was an amazing event. And if you weren't able to attend in person, and especially if you happen to live in Europe, I want you to book your plans for Lynx Amsterdam, which is happening May 9th and 10th. Registration is now open and the link can be found in the show notes. All right, back for another Live from Lynx episode of Public Key. Today, I'm joined by Sam Tenkate from State Street. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. You know, it's been a pretty wild couple weeks, couple months in banking which is a statement I didn't expect to be making this week, I'll be honest with you. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, crypto is the fun end of financial services, modernizing the boring, you know, staid, traditional world of banking, but there's been some wild stuff going on. Maybe we can start, if you can share some perspective, kind of contextualize what's going on in the industry right now uh, for our listeners. Sure, absolutely. So from a banking perspective, what really sort of kicked off the year was a January 3rd joint statement by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, and the Federal Reserve. So the three prudential regulators in the United States got together and issued a about three-page statement in which they identified a number of risks that they see with the industry. A lot of it is was expected and, and sort of uh, emblematic of what we've seen over the last sort of turbulent year or two. Uh, but there was one bullet in there in specific that was quite apropos for what's sort of happening now. And that was that they highlighted the risk that they believe banking institutions face when they interact with public, permissionless, or otherwise decentralized networks. And they find that banks that are interacting with public, permissionless, or otherwise decentralized networks cannot do so in a safe and sound manner. So. There's sort of two parts to that. One is they're singling out anything that's public or permissionless or decentralized. And the second part to that is that they're hinging that claim on safety and soundness. And so for those of you who don't know the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, they're prudential regulation, and they really focus on safety and soundness. And safety and soundness is a general term that includes the ability to have internal controls, to have the appropriate management, appropriate information systems, technology, and to be able to identify and manage risk. And so what they're really saying is that at this time, they have not seen any bank be able to interact with digital assets that are based on public chains that they think should be allowed into the banking sector. So they've exclusively sort of pushed some of the activity to the sidelines. So that was sort of the first indication that we got in the beginning of the year. Then uh, on January 27th, the Federal Reserve released a policy statement updating Section 913 of the Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act is the act that basically started the Federal Reserve. It was issued in 1913. So they updated a very old act, and they basically stated that any state member bank of the Federal Reserve should be held to the same standards as national banks, and national banks are held to the standard by the OCC. So they effectively brought in other entities that are state regulated but have access to the Federal Reserve or a Fed Master account into the same 
uh, expectations that national banks would have from the OCC. So you say, why does this matter? In the United States, most of the large banks that you would think of are either regulated by the OCC as a national bank or are regulated as a state member bank as part of the Federal Reserve. So they've really kind of cut out, at least for the time being, any banking activity that's not a state member only bank from engaging in public permissionless or decentralized finance. It's quite a significant statement from the regulars. It wasn't necessarily unexpected. Beginning of 2022, they released a statement, all three of the agencies together, as part of the president's executive orders that stated that they were taking some time to work together and to come with a more unified voice. And that was really a request from the industry. And they've provided that unified voice. So a lot of what you'll hear at Chainalysis is we need regulatory clarity. But, you know, the agencies, I think, would say that they've provided that clarity, that this time they don't perceive it being able to interact in a safe and sound manner. Is there any any sense of why they're taking that position? So, yep, great we got clarity, great we got unified voice. I would guess for almost everyone in the cryptocurrency blockchain industry, probably not the answer they were looking for. Sure. So again, the devil's here sort of in the details. And yeah. so I would encourage everybody to go and read this joint statement. It's yeah. again, three pages, it's written for the layman. Anybody can really understand it. Yeah. The last bullet on the first page is really where they go into detail about why they think that you can't do it in a safe and sound manner. They mentioned things like an ability to have real legal certainty around roles and responsibilities and, and contractual obligations. So if you don't necessarily know who the counterparty is, that is a big issue for the federal regulators. If you're not able to verify identity, that is a large issue for prudential regulators. And that goes along with things like customer protection and cybersecurity. So those are some of the things that they're really concerned about in this particular space. Well, and those are all very legitimate concerns, right? I mean, I think everybody in crypto and outside is definitely thinking about those things. I'm curious, how do you connect, and maybe they're not connected at all, the two things that you just talked about from the prudential regulatory side to then the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the closing of Silvergate, Credit Suisse ultimately failing, being sold off to UBS. Like, are those related or are these totally distinct incidents that happened kind of within a few months of each other? I think a lot of the information is still unfolding. So yeah. I think I'll caveat with, but we don't know all of the facts yet. Fair. However, I think the general consensus is, at least in the industry right now, is that Silvergate was you know, related to crypto volatility. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank was related to liquidity risk management and really had nothing to do or had maybe less to do with the crypto market overall. And then Signature is a bit of a toss-up, and I think we'll see that sort of play out on the public stage to see whether that was really related to crypto or whether that was a combination of different factors. Yeah. So I think uh, bank failures are definitely something that has kind of shocked the industry. Yeah. If, if we tie it back to sort of how Bitcoin began, the paper was published in 2008 and then the first block was done in 2009, that was really part of the banking crisis. And part of that Genesis block said, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. And that was really a commentary on the dangers or the risks associated with a fractional banking system. And that is what we have. We have fractional banking system. That's how traditional finance works here in the United States and in most other places. So there is risk in banking. I don't think anybody would claim that banking is riskless. Yeah. It's about how you manage those risks. And that's what really brings around safety and soundness. So I think that if you were to speak to regulators, you would, you would probably hear that Silicon Valley Bank was not operating in a safe and sound manner. There are are multiple things that they would probably point to in terms of liquidity risk management, oversight by a missing CRO, and other things like that, where th those things would be, for them, safety and soundness issues. So similar to 
crypto, you know, having safety and soundness issues, I think they would claim that traditional banking services have safety and soundness issues as well. You, you can't regulate away all risk. You know, things will happen. And I think if you look at the history of U.S. regulation, it usually takes something disaster or something to happen for them to stimulate new regulation. You know, the SEC that was started in 1970 because of a market crash. And so, you know, the SEC is really focused around investor protection, ensuring healthy and efficient markets and making sure that investors have the information they need to make sound investments. And that was really the result of lack of transparency and opaqueness in the markets and the crash back in the 60s. So we, we can expect maybe more developments in the in the coming months and, and years on the regulatory front as, as we start to ingest or consider what's happened over the last last year. Absolutely. I think yeah. we'll de we're definitely expecting more regulation. From my personal perspective, I think that we have the right regulatory frameworks in yeah. place. It's either sort of in reinterpreting some of the statutes that are underneath those or expanding some of the remits. And so I think we're unlikely in the United States to see something completely new and different, like you might find in Europe with Mika regime. I think here we're much more likely to see expansion of certain terms and definitions. One example of that is that the OCC at the end of 2021 published three interpretive letters. So if you haven't seen these and you're in the crypto space, it's 100% worth reading these papers that you should definitely read are interpretive letter 1170, which allows banks to engage in digital asset custody. So that's one big core element of the crypto ecosystem. The second one is 1172, which allows banks to hold stablecoin reserves. And then the third one is 1174, which allows for banks to run independent node validation networks for stablecoin arrangements. So those are the three letters where they haven't actually changed the regulation. What they've done is they provided a legal interpretation of how existing regulation allows banks or permits banks to enter in this type of activity. We call that permissibility. I will note, however, the OCC then published also 1179, and then the Fed followed with something very similar at the beginning of this year, where they stated that permissibility or legal permissibility is not enough for a bank to engage in this activity. Safety and soundness is also a concern. So even though you might be legally allowed to do some activity, that doesn't mean necessarily that you can just do so. So we will absolutely link to, to those papers in the show notes so people can go to the show notes and read those after the conversation here. So I think that, though, might create this situation where when people are asking for regulatory clarity, it's like, oh, wait, you said these things are all allowed. Great interpretation. And then you're saying, well, but it may not be safe or sound to do so. So therefore, like inadvisable. And then obviously what was you mentioned earlier that was published at the start of this year, I can imagine a listener going, well, you just said legally permissible is the interpretation and then certain activities are legally certain yeah, absolutely certain activities legally yep. permissible but then it seems like the latest documents that we started talking about at the top of the show reverse that opinion so now we're back in this like gray area in the middle yeah so let me give you a, a specific example that i think the industry needs to wrestle with and sort of figure it out and it falls under the bucket of safety and soundness yep. so Financial crimes is a big topic for regulations, and of course, that includes deterring money laundering, but also deterring or reporting sanctioned activity. Super important uh, for national security purposes and whatnot. So I don't think anybody would argue that that is not a concern. However, what is sort of new in this space is that if you are running a node on the Ethereum network and you want to submit a transaction or you want to submit something, then you have to pay gas fees. So when you're paying gas fees, you pay it to the network, and then the network randomly or you know, depending on who's connected to the network will pay that fee to the node validator. So you don't actually know who the node validator is, where they're domiciled, the entity behind that. And so you're working with a unknown counterparty and that counterparty could be in a sanctioned 
entity. It could be a money launderer. And so we have to figure out as an industry, how do we either accept that risk or figure out how to eliminate or minimize that risk? Because it is a serious risk and it's something that I don't think the industry has fully fleshed out. Sorry, I just wanted to break in here for a moment. Sam brought up such a great point about decentralization and sanctions concerns. There was a related session at Lynx with my colleague Caroline Malcolm and Commissioner Christy Goldsmith-Romero from the CFTC. Let's listen to Christy discuss DeFi from a regulator's perspective. When you talk about DeFi and, and crypto generally, but certainly in the DeFi space, this is the issue where it's still very nascent that really needs to evolve. But But let me tell you, from a regulator standpoint, we got to get on fundamental same page that the foundation has to be to prevent illicit finance. We have to prevent terrorist financing, sanctions evasion, money laundering. And so when you look at this, identity becomes really important. Who are you doing business with? Let me also say, it is not just from the regulator's perspective. A lot of your customers also don't want to be having their funds mixed with someone from North Korea or a terrorist group. And that includes individuals, like retail participants, but it also includes a lot of uh, financial institutions who can't, who can't engage in a situation like that. I hope that Commissioner Romero's comments help you frame up how the regulator is thinking about DeFi and crypto in general. Now back to our conversation with Sam. There's been a lot of complexity, like post the sanctioning of Tornado Cash, about how node operators should accept or reject transactions that Absolutely. have funds related to that. So maybe bring it back to your current role a little bit. Talk to us about State Street. I mean, I imagine there's a few listeners out there that are going, yeah, why is State Street on, a, on this crypto podcast? Maybe start with some background on overall State Street and then talk about the digital asset strategy. Sure, absolutely. So State Street is a large custodian bank. We have about 36.7 trillion assets in custody and in our administration. State Street sometimes not thought of as like the sexy bank or the commercial or private banks that you might think about out there. But we play a large part in the financial infrastructure, not just in the United States, but in the world. So we hold a lot of assets for the world. And so when digital assets really became more and more popular and we saw the promise of blockchain distributed ledger technology, of course, we wanted to make inroads into this space as well because we want to be at the forefront. Many people might not know this, but State Street has a history of innovation. We were the first bank to design the exchange traded fund or the ETFs. I so we didn't know that. That's yeah, so we have a very we have a long history of innovation, but again, sort of maybe in the background, and we only serve institutional investors. So right. we don't have any retail or anything like that, but we are a large player in the market infrastructure. We're also a globally systemic important financial institution, which is a designation from the Basel Committee which basically says that we are a critical infrastructure for the financial system in the world. And so we have a very key role, but that also comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of very high regulatory expectations. Yeah. We are definitely committed to this space. We have State Street Digital, which is a subunit within State Street that is focused on promise of digital technologies. We think of it sort of in three different pillars. The first one being custody and payments. The second being tokenization, particularly tokenization of existing financial instruments. And then the third leg is fund administration and accounting. The first one, custody and payments, that is where we are looking to come to market with some sort of custody product, particularly around digital assets. I think this is an interesting one because in the crypto world, a couple motivations got conflated in a weird way where it was like self-sovereignty coming out of the 08 financial crisis. We don't trust banks. So I'm going to control all my financial assets personally, right? Like this mm -hmm. is the not your keys, not your crypto yeah, absolutely. Uh, meme that we see running around the internet. But it turns out technically that's super complex, like beyond the average user. 
So then we see the rise of crypto exchanges and those exchanges, rather than doing what happens in the traditional financial system where they use a third party custodian for their assets, like your business, they self custody and it's led into the quite a few instances of fraud, but also cyber incidents and all these other sort of like control issues. But I don't have a good sense of the industry has yet said, oh, third party custodian is actually the solution here, tried and tested, you know, it's worked in the banking system forever. In terms of your business, I'm guessing you see a big opportunity there to, to kind of make that the de facto way the digital asset ecosystem is operating. Absolutely. Okay? I think what we see in some of the failures with exchanges is that we don't have segregation of activity. And so the traditional financial system didn't just magically come up with this. It's been a progress over multiple years yeah. where your investment manager or your investment advisor has a certain amount of responsibility, but it's much safer to segregate that responsibility from the safekeeping of assets. And so that is a requirement in traditional finance. And if you follow along with US regulation, the SEC has a proposed custody rule where that actually expands the definition of the assets that are required to be held by a independent qualified custodian. Even though in, in the previous regulation it was mostly focused on securities, they're sort of broadening the definition of what would be required to be held by a third party custodian. And although there's some you know complications in that particular proposed rule, it's like 500 pages, the general concept of being able to have a qualified custodian hold your assets is something that we definitely believe in as being a, a third party custodian. Uh, I'll also say that you know it's not easy to protect assets, right? I mean, the, particularly around digital assets, you have a lot of different cybersecurity threats and other things like that that you want to make sure that you address. And so having a entity that is solely focused on only safekeeping your assets, in my personal view, is something that the industry probably should embrace. Because if you're doing exchange services, you're also doing custody services, you're potentially also doing proprietary trading. That is a whole mix of different services that you probably want to segregate out. And that is in an effort to protect both investors as well as customers, different exchanges or digital assets. You know, personally, if I had several thousands of dollars, you know, I would be much more comfortable if I knew that it was with a custodian than if I had it on a thumb drive under my bed or thumb drive in <laughs> in my bedroom somewhere. That's, so. that's right. Or just on your phone in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know. I'm with you. You mentioned in this area of strategy, payments. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the in the payment space. Sure. So we're, we're not a payment bank, but we definitely want to be involved in sort of evolution of this. So we are a participant in Finality, which is a payment startup that's working with a number of different large banks and central banks to come up with a, you can think of it sort of as a large bank consortium, not really a CBDC, but sort of coming close to a CBDC. And so this would be for intra-bank Intra-bank settlement payments. Okay. Yeah. How does that relate to something like FedNow? Sure. So FedNow, uh, I think, is an exciting development. Yeah. Uh, the FedNow, for those of you who don't know, is sort of an advancement of being able to access the Fed master accounts that allows for more real-time access to U.S. dollar clearing in the United States. The FedNow has been expected for some time, but earlier this year was released that it was most likely go live towards the middle or end of this year. Yeah. So I think everybody's very excited about to see what, what FedNow can do. FedNow attempts to solve sort of the 365, seven days a week, 24-hour access to Fed U.S. dollar clearing. I'm not super in-depth of all of the details yeah. of Finality, but this tries to provide some sort of payment rail between the different large banks to allow for similar types of clearing yeah, between okay. entities. So complementary, but bank to bank rather than bank to Fed is probably? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they're working, I think the Finality is now working with the Bank of England to look at the pound as one of the first use cases. So oh, I think that's sort of where the developments are. Okay. Finality. Yeah. So you get some foreign exchange 
activity happening. Yeah, or not using a US dollar as sort of the underlying asset, but a pound. Okay. Yeah, as a sort of a first proof of concept. Interesting. So you mentioned the second big area of the strategy relates to tokenization, which I feel like I was in Switzerland for Davos and it felt like nice. at least half of the crypto conversation, maybe even more than half, was all about real world asset tokenization. And like the, the drumbeat of that conversation is like, feels to me like it just keeps going up over the last three months since, since that event. So how are you looking at that opportunity? What's interesting in that market to you? What are you guys doing around tokenization? Sure. So I think most banks have been focused on tokenization for some time, and it really speaks to the promise of distributed ledger technology and blockchain. I think that most large banks, while they were pursuing both different maybe proof of concepts with public, permissionless, or otherwise decentralized entities and networks, as well as doing tokenization on private permission blockchains, now have sort of shifted some of their focus potentially to focus more exclusively on tokenization, given some of the regulatory scrutiny in the United States around public permissionless networks. So having said that, in tokenization, I think we think there's a lot of promise in the technology, but we still have to sort of figure out how to really apply it in the right use cases. So even though tokenization and DLT is a fantastic innovation, it's not appropriate for all asset classes, it's not appropriate for all kinds of processes that we want to do. However, we think there's great promise in terms of facilitating real-time settlements, or near real-time settlements, or T plus one, T plus zero, is some of the things that you might hear in this space, as well as making some assets that are somewhat illiquid more liquid so that they have broader appeal to a broader market. So I, I've been trying to think about this space a little bit, and I'm far from an expert here. So when someone says, oh, I want to tokenize a bond, I'm like, okay, well, that's largely an electronic instrument at this point. Like, I guess you could get a piece of paper that represents like a corporate bond or a government bond, but nobody really holds those pieces of paper. They're effectively digital today. Yep. And so what we're saying is, okay, now we're going to create an even more digital native representation of that. And we're going to solve some of the like settlement custody clearing complexity that exists because of the back-end infrastructure systems between all the entities who are buying and selling these things. That's roughly it. So when you when you, when you have a bond, somebody is actually holding that. In some cases, you might be holding that in the okay. back-end. You, as at the end holder of that bond, depending on who you know, you're buying it from, yeah. may not know about all of the different procedural steps that go into yeah. that in the background. So maybe a bond, but let, let's take like a security, for instance. So, yeah. so you buy an Apple stock, right? Yep. So even though you might see on your app or your cell phone, okay, I bought an Apple stock and then it provides there. There are multiple transactions that are occurring in the background and for securities usually clear through a central securities depository where they are the ones that are registering who owns what of the securities. And so somebody's actually holding, you know, a digital representation yeah. of a certificated security. In some cases, there may be no certificate, but then that ownership is recorded through a transfer agent. And so, you know, somewhere there has to be a record of who owns what. Yeah. So I think in, in the U.S. is that DTCC is, is the primary entity that does that, does, okay. the, does the securities uh, clearing. So when, when we talk about tokenization, what, what's likely, I think, in my personal view to happen is that some of the securities are still held by the traditional institutions, but we create a tokenized version of that security and that token can then be moved around more freely. And then if the entity wants to redeem that token, then all of the sort of backend processes that we have in traditional finance sort of get executed yeah. in terms of ultimate ownership. So that's like one aspect of tokenization. And then you also have on-chain or native on-chain tokenization where the actual share 
or the actual share class is actually issued natively on the blockchain rather than associated with something that is still represented in the traditional system. But as you say, it's not like a necessarily a piece of paper, but it is a ledger entry in a centralized database that would represent sort of traditional financial means of record ownership. Yeah. Recording ownership. So, so that all makes sense to me. And I, I think the primary value proposition is like an improvement of the processing steps that most people don't see. Like if you're in banking, you understand all these things, but if you're... Yeah, or even if you're in banking, it's still complicated yeah, and difficult yeah. to understand, but yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah but so. like for the average person who's buying, you know, a share of stock via their online brokerage, like nothing really changes in this, this tokenization context in terms of their experience. Like the share shows up in their, their brokerage account. So one of the things that you might notice in sort of in the media maybe you know five-year term period yeah. is accelerated settlement so that's something that I think a lot of banks are looking at so now typically if you purchase a stock for instance it's about two days it can be a little faster but that basically allows two days for all of these processes to occur so if you're buying a stock on an app it usually takes two days for that stock to actually be in possession of the bank that is showing you that you have that stock and that's yeah. why sometimes you have you have to wait and to cash out if you sell a stock because uh. The actual ownership has to go and pre-process and then they'll actually provide you that. Now, in some cases, banks might provide that in advance because they know or they're confident that the clearing will occur on the back end. Yep. But I think you'll see some of the faster settlement cycles and that's one of the big promises of yeah. the blockchain technology. That's a great point. Where I was going with the, the question though is when we think about, you mentioned less liquid assets. And like I've seen a lot of people talking about, oh, we're gonna tokenize real estate. And there's a company called Dibs who is working on digital representation of real world things. They'll store your, your artifact, piece of art, fancy yep. pair of shoes in a vault. They'll give you a digital representation of that as an NFT that exists on a blockchain. And like, if at some point you want the real object, you can kind of burn your token and they'll ship you the real object. I'm wondering like your perspective on, on the less liquid end of the spectrum, like is that useful? Is it necessary? What's the drive in that area? The concept of taking a less liquid aquid and making it more liquid provides yeah. for broader access, yeah. better distribution, and so more people can participate. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily as familiar with real estate or yeah. potentially you know expensive art, but in the banking sector and something that we're looking into is like the tokenization of private funds or a hedge fund. So those okay. you know are not necessarily as liquid as potentially like a stock or something like that, yeah. where there's usually a higher sort of barrier to entry and you don't typically have you know thousands of investors in a private fund. You might have maybe several hundreds yeah. or, or even in the teens, depending on the type of fund. So in the sort of alternative investment space or in private funds, again, those funds are really ripe for some disruption in terms of providing more access to a broader set of communities. If you and I wanted to invest in a private fund, there would be, be more challenging and there might be minimums, for instance, you know, it might be a minimum of you know, $10,000, $100,000. And so being able to tokenize that and making the barrier to entry much smaller and taking away some of that administrative costs might allow for more individuals like you and me or smaller institutional investors to get into a private fund. In some ways, that sounds a little bit like what's happened with ETFs, where suddenly... Absolutely. I don't ETFs made it way more accessible for a broader audience. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay, I hadn't thought about it like that. That's fascinating. There was a third part of the strategy, and now I'm blanking on the Sure, third thing. Fund, fund administration and accounting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, talk to us about what you're doing there. Sure. So uh, we have a live product. That's where we provide fund administration and accounting for institutional investors that are invested in the digital asset space. We have a partnership with Luca that is providing information and data around that as well. 
that's a public partnership that you can look into. So fund administration accounting is, again, maybe not the sexiest thing in the space, but is a requirement. You need to be able to produce a, we call a NAV or net asset value determination, and you need to be able to price your overall portfolio. So there are a number of services that we do related to that particular product line. How much demand are you seeing from asset managers in the space? I've heard kind of conflicting reports depending on who I've talked to where on one hand, it's like every asset manager in the country wants to be able to add crypto as a asset that is available to buy and sell for their clients. Sure. To the other end of like, oh, demand's dropped way off as we've seen prices kind of come down over the last last 12 months. Any perspective there? Sure. So State Street did a survey that we actually we published. So I encourage people to check that out. Yeah, I'll um, link to it. We also do a State Street Digital Digest where we talk about certain things like this. Uh, we can provide you that link as well. But I think what we found when we looked, when we asked our customers and our clients, you know, what are you, what are, are you still interested in this space? Or are you still? I think overwhelmingly the answer is yes. Uh, institutional asset owners, asset managers uh, are still quite interested in this space. They're a little bit more cautious now than they were, you know, 16 months ago. And of course, that makes a lot of sense given all of the volatility and some of the bad actors that have fallen out from this space. And again, similar to sort of our focus, and we like to try and follow our clients and try to service their needs, the focus has shifted somewhat from public cryptos to some of the potential that might be realized by tokenization of financial instruments. Having said that, there still is quite a bit of demand, uh, at least we believe, in public cryptos as well, and services that we would offer, such as custody. You touched on stable coins earlier in the conversation a little bit, and I think one of the big topics over the last year and a half has been where do the reserves backing these uh, you know, dollar denominated or hard currency denominated assets actually sit? Are, are you guys doing any work in, are you doing custody for any of the, the stable coins that are out there at this point? So I, I can't speak to any of that in particular, but I would say that you know stable coins is something that is again like market infrastructure. I think if we look at the United States, the most likely legislation that would get passed, if we see some action from Congress, is likely to be around stable coins. Yeah. Um, the House Committee on Financial Services, there's a subcommittee. They do hearings, I think, every week or every other week. Yeah. Um, and so those are really interesting to listen to and to sort of see where they're sort of tracking. And their focus, at least in the, in the, in the short term, at least the chair, Republican, McHenry, I think is his name, has stated that stablecoin legislation is where they're headed. So I think that'll be something interesting to watch in the short term. Do you think that lines up with what the, the Mika regulation in Europe did around stablecoins? Or do you think there's more, more to it? it comes to pass. I'm not sure. I'm sure that they will look at Mika yeah. since it's been out there, yeah. but I'm sure that Congress will look at that yeah. as an example and then sort of try to adapt it to, to what else they can do. I think what you'll also find on stable coins is encouraging. I'm, I'm all about primary sources. People can go and read it for themselves. If you haven't heard of the Bank of International Settlements, BIS, it is a global standard body that works with, so sort of the central bank of central banks that works with all of the central banks from different jurisdictions. They've also put out a number of guidance around stable coins. And it's important to look at these types of standard setting bodies because it influences how all of these other jurisdictions interpret the sort of high-level standards that they need to consider in developing stablecoins or stablecoin regulation. So the BIS actually just released another report, I think earlier last week, yeah. uh, around stablecoins. It's on yeah. my own personal to-do uh, <laughs> reading list, so I haven't read all of it yet. But again, you know, it shows a real focus on stablecoins, and there's, there is clear guidance about things that nation states should be expected to follow should they implement stablecoin regulations. Maybe, maybe as we wrap up the conversation, when you look out 
into the future. And I know predicting the future in this digital asset space is super hard, but what are you excited about? What are you, what are you hoping to see happen this year and next year? Sure, absolutely. So I think something the industry is not really talking about as much is digital identity. I think digital identity, if we as an industry can sort of progress that, will solve a number of some of the issues that are now associated with public permissionless or otherwise decentralized entities and allowing sort of fixing this public private key pseudonymous issue in terms of having a identity that's on chain that allows you to understand who the counterparty is, who you're doing business with. And I think it'll resolve some of the issues that we currently see around financial crimes and other things associated with doing business on a public chain. Great point. Excellent place to wrap up. Sam, thanks for joining us. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey there, thanks for listening to a special Live From Links episode of Public Key. This is the third episode of a series that will air over the next few weeks. The series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, the official sponsor of Live From Links. After listening to such a powerful episode from Links New York, you're probably wondering what else you might have missed at this conference. Don't worry, the Chainalysis team has updated our YouTube channel with much of the main stage content. You can find the link in the show notes, or if you subscribe, you'll get the updates pushed directly to you. Last thing before we go, we touched a bit on Mika in this episode, and it looks like the EU is close to the finish line when it comes to the new regulations on virtual assets. If you go down to the show notes, you can get a link to our recent blog on Mika and all the reports that Sam mentioned during the podcast.